Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. Lockdown Day 397. In an effort to stave off total insanity, I've drawn a face on my modular synthesizer and I've been treating them as a person for the last three months. Tavulin 9000, as I refer to them, is my friend, confidant and occasional lover. Tavulin is a demanding companion, though, and has been requesting keepsakes of my affection from signal sounds on a near-weekly basis. A Buchler easel command is now Tarvulin's, along with a brand new Intelligel Metropolix and regular missives sealed with a loving kiss on James Sigler's Patch the Card Game cards. They're like Brian Eno's oblique strategies, but for your modular, Tarvulin says, before giving me a little zap of CV, which is like a kiss, only quite painful. Oh well, anything for my Tarvi. Thank God for Signal Sound's speedy delivery. So, to appease the inanimate objects that in your crushing loneliness have begun to take on sentient forms and make demands of you, head your mouse over to Signalsounds.com. That website again is Signalsounds.com. It's that time again. It's Tom Whitwell o'clock, and I'm buying. Yes, friends, this means it's been four years of bleeping. Well, the, the bleep is entering its fourth year of life in February, uh, which is a strange kind of January, but that's just the way of it sometimes. It has been difficult to finish projects, it appears, of late. And that's probably the theme of this conversation, if there was one, because Tom has been very, very busy. But unfortunately, as you probably know, it has not been able to release a number of things which we talked about last year. Uh, and we talk about that. Yes, we're all feeling the pinch a little bit, none more than Tom, but he's doing his best, dang it. Um, and this and many other things that are always, uh, you know, whenever you talk to Tom, there are always interesting things that come up. He is a worldly man, um, interested in all manner of different aspects. And this conversation is no different. It's full of odd, interesting things that you may wish to investigate further. Not least, actually, for the first time, we talk about Tom's day job. He is a management consultant, which is sounds sort of a bit weird and boring, but is actually very, very fascinating because he has to go into companies and get under their skin and work out what they really need when they don't even necessarily know what that is. Uh, and it relates directly to the whole thing of designing products. Although, ironically, Tom goes about designing products in almost the opposite manner. Um, and we talk about, yeah, not finishing projects, the importance of meeting people and seeing people, uh, which we've had to do in a very different way, and ask the essential question, is your Iraq boring? Spoiler alert, no, it's not. We talk about uh, making digital devices that are unique. We talk about possible future cheering machines and modules in general. Uh, the problems with Spotify, and Tom talks about his experiences with the spooky Soma Ether which is a very interesting device. The Soma Ether is the Soma's sort of weird 
um, radio receiver thing with kind of antenna prongs where you can kind of point it at inanimate objects and you hear sound from them, uh, which is probably something that um, is <laughs> doing with Tavul in 9000. Uh, he'd probably tell you a thing or two if you uh, put that close to them. But um, yeah, that is a very fascinating device. And actually, I subsequently purchased one. Uh, but I'll talk more about that later. I think first, though, we're going to have one more advert, an interesting ad from an excellent company. And then we're going to chat to Tom. So what's that ad? Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community for creative and curious people like you. Offering thousands of inspiring video-based classes on topics as varied as illustration to graphic design, music production, animation, writing, film and video productivity, the list, it is long. But the classes are short, under 60 minutes in most cases, with lessons to fit any schedule. I've been watching Productivity for Creatives build a system that brings out your best by a chap called Thomas Frank. The principle of this class is that inspiration isn't a muse, it's a muscle. He has some key points regarding removing friction from the process of making things, be it videos, music, what have you, including the 20-second rule, which really reminds me of what BT said about his modular. Make it so that it doesn't take more than 20 seconds to be able to do something that you know you need to do more of. If it takes more than 20, you're less likely to do it. I'm looking at my half-disconnected studio that I've hardly recorded anything in ages and thinking, Thomas has a point. If you're interested in learning things, check out Skillshare. And Skillshare is also extremely affordable at less than $10 a month with a yearly subscription. But I have a deal for you. The first 1,000 people to use the link in my description will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium Membership. Click the link and get yourself some free learning. And with that, it is time to commence the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Whitwell, Mark Four. I've definitely been feeling that things not not finishing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've got lots of things I've started. I've got lots of things I've made some progress with, um, but actually getting things properly finished and out the door has probably not been as as effective as it might have been. Which obviously we can blame COVID for that. I think it, a lot of people have been saying that it's. You should be excused for not being productive during COVID. I think that's especially true if you have children. Um, yes. Especially true if your children are supposed to be in school. Uh, yeah. Have you, is that you? No, so mine, mine are teenagers. So mine are, mine are 15 and 17. So so they're fine. They're, they're kind of... Well, surely a 15-year-old's supposed to be going to school or is... Yes, they're, they're going they... to school, but they're going to school consists of sitting in their room on a laptop doing stuff. You know, I don't... I don't I don't need to sort of stand, or there, there would be no, there would be no value in me standing behind them and telling them what to do. That wouldn't wouldn't be helpful. Um, so I I don't have the sort of childcare horror that so many people have had this year. I mean, we it's been I don't know what your your sort of work has been like, but it it has been quite amazing having the kind of you know we do these big Zoom sessions where kind of fifty people 
from from Flux where I work are all kind of talking. All their face, well, not all talking at once, but everyone's faces up there. And there are bits of that where it does feel like you see, you know you probably see people's faces more often than you would have done previously. You know, it would have been in the past that somebody might be working on a project for months on end. And or you'd be on a project and you just wouldn't bump into them in the office or whatever. And so there have been there have been bits where it's felt a little bit, you know, it's felt more close and more connected than it might do. But I think that's a very, very specific type of company that I, I now work for that probably isn't, it certainly isn't the experience for most people, I don't think. What do you actually do? I am, I am a management consultant. I can say that now after doing it for five years. <laughs> So you, well, you feel comfortable saying it at this point, or you've come to peace with it. Yeah, so we, we sort of, you know, I will go and work for a company like, a lot of this year I was working for The Economist, um, and The Economist are trying to do something new uh, and interesting, and me and a couple of other people with Flux from Flux will go in and work with a team from them, and we will make that thing together, and we will test it, and we'll do experiments, and we will, we will make progress on it. Uh, and so we do that for lots of different, you know, different random companies. It's, it's, they will have an idea for a product and we'll help them figure out what it might be. How can they do it? How often it's, how can they, um, either decide what the product should be or decide how do you, how do you decide if it is a good idea? So we, we've done stuff, we did stuff for a, for a bank where they had an idea for a, for a thing, for a new kind of bank account or whatever. They'd done loads of focus groups, and in the focus groups, everyone said, oh, that'd be great, I'd love that. But they were a bit paranoid after previous experiences that that might not actually be real. So we did a bunch of little experiments where we created a kind of version of this that people could buy uh, and to find out if people actually will buy it, if they do really want it, or they're just saying that in, in meetings. Is that a thing? The most famous, and I'm sure apocryphal story, is when... Uh, when Sony were Sony were introducing a Walkman back in the in the olden days, and they the big thing with this particular Walkman was that it was going to be available in different colours. So they have like a black one and a red one and a blue one and a green one and a yellow one, whatever. And they had a focus group and they showed this to people, and everyone in the group said, "This is great! It's really good! It's so boring that Walkman. Were all, why are they all black or silver?" It's brilliant. You've done this. This is really, really good idea. And at the end of the session, they said to say thank you for being part of this session. Uh, we're going to give you one of these Walkmans to take away. Which colour would you like? And everyone picked up the black one and walked out. And oh, so dear. what people what, what people say and what people, you know, I mean, we we see this as well. Where if you if you present a new idea, a new instrument, a new module, whatever. Um, it's very easy, and I would do this myself as well. I'm not saying I wouldn't do this, but you look at it and you can say, oh, it would be great if it could do this. Oh, there's an interesting thing that it could do that would be like this. Here's a feature that would be, you know, why can't it do this? Um, and then you put those things in, and then when they go out, you get a very strong impression that, that nobody is using that feature, nobody is using that part of it, and they're using it in a in a different way. They don't They don't... It's not they're lying, as they don't know how they would use it because they haven't got it. So that's I think that that's the sort of the the sort of real thing that we do is asking people what they think 
is just never terribly enlightening because how would how would they know how how would they possibly know how would they know even until they've they've actually gone in and put spent the money and then even then how would they know whether they're going to want that and use it and keep it or whether they're going to get it home and go this is cool and then sell it to somebody you know weeks later and you you can you can ask people and they can tell you but the things they tell you aren't necessarily terribly useful or enlightening. What what you can do is talk to people about what they do, what they're trying to do, how they use other devices, how they how they work. You can watch people work. You can I think it's particularly interesting when you kind of listen to the sort of frustrations of, of people who are playing live and that kind of thing. Um, and that can be really interesting because then you are getting genuine information. But it's then for you as the designer to go and figure out what the what the solution is, and then asking the person whether you think that's the right solution may well again not be terribly useful until they actually have it in their hands, until they've learnt it, until they've had a go with it, until they've compared it with other competitors, whatever it is. It's quite hard for them to be able to give you very useful feedback on on whether that is something that that they want or something that's useful. What you want to do is absolutely give people what they want. You want to absolutely give people things that people enjoy and people value and people buy and people, you know, come back to and use. Um, but doing that by asking people what they want is not necessarily the most effective thing because they don't know. It's not that they're lying or they're being disingenuous. It's just how, how could they know because they haven't got the thing. I keep thinking of a certain company throughout everything that you're saying in terms of the, the process of just asking people what they want. Also, the process of making multiple colours of things is an interesting one. Uh, I can't help but... But we're not going to talk about that company today. Well, we? we're not talk, we, know we aren't going to talk about that company. No. I only know that there are <laughs> 10 different coloured 606s. Astonishing. <laughs> I don't know if it's... Were I, uh, were I not boycotting everything that company does, then I don't know if I would... I don't think I would buy it. I might buy a tangerine or a. You wait. They'll they'll do them with transparent plastic covers, and we'll all buy them because that'd be so cool. And that would like just clear, like the just uh, clear prison, plastic, exactly like prison yeah. devices. Yeah, I watched the yeah. um, Tech Moan. Tech Moan. Oh, okay. Did a, he did a whole thing about prison because prison equipment, prison sort of consumer electronics, have to be shipped in clear um, plastic outers so you get yeah. tvs and you can look inside you can see the crt and that's um, so cool and like yeah and like tape decks the CD typewriters players, typewriters they clear have typewriters. clear typewriters that i've seen for prisons because they obviously make them typewrite things so they can then charge them hundreds of dollars for a typewriter yeah kind of exactly thing. it's a yeah and he obviously was interested in that tech and i think a lot of the stuff is kind of up till very recently, there were still, I mean, obviously cassettes are still a thing, but cassettes were particularly a thing in prisons because yeah. um, you were able to get cassettes where you, you were able to get cassette players where you weren't necessarily able to get like computers and MP3 players. Um, I think that is changing a little bit, but it's, um, there's, yeah, there's sort of still an industry like you had um, 808s and Heartbreak or something on cassette, I think, and it was yeah. a clear, you know, clear version. I'm sure that was, oh, that's something remembering. But it isn't, yeah, the sort of notion of what you do as your job seems to basically, you're a bit like, you remind me of James Carruthers in that sense. I believe he's still, you know, Mr. Nobots. That's his job as well. He, is he does a, exactly the same sort of thing as me. He does. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to him endlessly about it, but I'm never sure if it's exactly the same thing. But it is, um, 
Yeah, and it's, it makes sense. Why wouldn't you... For, for James, I talked to him and he's like, I'm not really a musician, but there's no reason why I can't design a musical instrument because it's just the same thing that I do in my professional work. I am Every day you're coming to a new industry and you're having to sort of from the ground up, presumably, feel, you know, if you... Yes, you have worked in magazines in the past, but um, not necessarily The Economist. So you, you, it's your job, obviously, to sort of get into another world, get yeah. under their skin and then tell them or show them what they want. But you don't design Eurorack modules this way. You don't go and No, I was, I was going to say, when you, when you were talking about, about James, I definitely do not do that myself. Um, I'm much more sort of self-indulgent... And much more kind of, I reckon something like this will be interesting, so I'm going to make it. Is this kind of like, it's almost like a relief for you? It's like a way yeah, of being a, there, Yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it's certainly a much more, um, it's a, yeah, it's a very different way of doing it. And, and I think that's why I often have that point where I come up with something and then I go to Steve Thonk and say, I've made this thing, do you think anyone's going to want it? You know, and that's a very genuine question, and I'm very, you know, and there have definitely been things where he will say, oh, yeah, I think this is going to be great, and I'll, we'll make 250 of them or something, and I'll say, I'm really not sure this is going to be, this is the thing. Let's, let's do 150 first or 100 first and see if anyone, anyone really wants it. You know, and I'm very uncertain about what what things people will will be excited by and what things they won't be excited by. Do, do you, feel, you mean that you're feeling out of touch? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, what's the LCD sound system? Losing the, my the edge. Kids. You're losing your edge, basically. Yeah, absolutely. The kids are actually really, really nice. The, uh, well, we haven't had shows, have we? So the shows are surely your litmus test where you go and speak to the people and say, what do you want? Well, it's going. I, I definitely say a think horse. it's definitely it's not it's not speaking to them, but it's definitely. I have really missed just you know you just meet interesting weird people at those those events. You know whether it's a super booth or a CV freaks or whatever it is. You know you just wander around and you meet people who have different ways of looking at the world or using things in different ways or whatever that is. And there is a real bit of kind of inspiration there that I think is you know I've missed much more than than I thought I would you know I think mm. I think that that you know it's it's the randomness it's the sort of you know you always meet weird people with weird backgrounds who have weird jobs and do weird things <laughs> at those events uh and that's really interesting and that's really kind of you know definitely been missing that this year there's, there are things that come of shows as well I mean um, I can think of literally two examples sat here of like the new um micro freak oscillators from noise engineering oh yeah that came because sebastian and jb from arturia just went and talked to um noise engineering at now yeah. 2019 and they were like you should do some oscillators and it's actually finally it's out yeah um and then i was talking to um Soundforce, nicholas at Soundforce. um i was looking at all his controllers like you should do a jupiter 8 one and he's making it so it's true like things do things do come out of shows which i think is like you know and i work in the industry where we go and do shows and you're often you know you always question is this worthwhile and yeah. and it's never also a clear thing because it's not about um 
a lot of the time, it's not about like, did we sell lots of gear when we were there? Did we ensure that we sold things? And it's, there's a kind of intangible quality to those things where, um, you just have lots of conversations with people and you try and get people inspired and you do, you listen to customers and you get a sense of what people are excited by and interested in. Um, and yeah. that definitely changes, you know, for, for, you know, I talk to people and unlike, for example, the very, very, we started doing this just as it, as COVID hit, but, but the hydrosynth, you know, the ASM hydrosynth, yeah. you know, and I, I took that to the show at Fabric. Uh, there was this, uh, show there like a one you know uh, in January I think and it was by far and away it was the thing that everyone was like this is the best thing I've seen at this show yeah. this is the most amazing thing ever and it's sort of that certitude it helps you understand what is successful about a product and that well it, it, in this sense very simplistically it just helps you understand that there's nothing wrong with the product and so that you then need to you put your efforts into um promoting it and making getting that reaction from people by just showing them it working yes yeah. um we don't really have that there's no feedback at all if you don't have shows and there are internet comments but obviously a lot of the time That's very people, very different yeah yeah and yeah. they don't comment if it's like complaints like people don't leave people do leave positive comments a lot but they don't always and they people love leaving negative comments um <laughs> just like a very recent example um, I did a I did a ch edit of some um, jams from a Beatstep Pro video I did five years ago. And yeah. I, it was given to Archeria and they ran an ad. Um, and that ad had just an absolute wall-to-wall -wall, um, panning of the video. It, literally every single comment was like, this is not music, could have pulled better music out of my bum. Um, who are these people? What is going on? This is unbelievable. This just, you know, this just melted my mind. Uh, my, I want to stick pins in my ears. Uh, like wall-to-wall -wall bad, yeah. um, which is <laughs> somewhat unusual, especially also since the original video really has good comments. There were a couple of people who were like, this music is terrible on the original video, but not that many. Um, and so this teaches me that basically people need some padding to tolerate my weird-ass jams. But also it's... <laughs> The, the fact was that all the negative feedback made the video perform really well. And it, <laughs> it reminded me of the last conversation we had where we, you talked about shitposting, yes. the Conservative Party having like Comic Sans adverts. Yeah. Because I started thinking I might, I might start doing some Comic Sans videos. That's basically why I didn't done there clearly in people's yeah. eyes. Um, but it did really well. Uh, but I'm, you know, I don't know. The, the point is the feedback is valuable. I think it's also with the events, it's the, it, it, you know, I think there's there's one thing is seeing those events as marketing and seeing them as a business event. But I, I you know, for me, it's just, it's it, the, the value is, is that just meeting random people. Also, is there's something about um, demoing things to people and just seeing, or seeing literally how they physically use a thing, you know, which knobs do they touch, which knobs don't they touch, that sort of thing. That can be really, really valuable, I think, as well. Uh, and it's very hard to get that from any other any other source, I think. I also like, you know, something like Brighton, where you've got a lot of people who are just making the... Absolutely, who are just, just making the kind of, um, you know, they've made something or they've put... You see people's real rigs they put together themselves. I think that's really powerful and interesting as well. There's, yeah, just seeing how people approach, and that's that has been 
I think for me, one of, uh, I want to, I'm going to go to a question that someone asked. We've got a bunch of questions that have come from people. Um, Dennis McNulty asks, is your Iraq still interesting? Yes, I think so. I th- my my favourite thing I saw recently was um, Mr. was Nonlinear Circuits, who's one of my favourite designers in Australia because everything he does is done, I think, fundamentally kind of quickly, and everything is analog. So he doesn't, as I do, get completely stuck programming some tedious thing for years on end. He just did a thing. LDRama, and it's a panel of kind of quite a quite a big Euro panel. The top of the panel is um, a grid of like forty something LDRs, which are little, which are light sensitive resistors, and the bottom is a bunch of sockets and you know one knob on it. And the idea is you place your phone onto the bed of LDRs. Whatever is playing on your phone produces light. And then there's like eight, ten outputs at the bottom that produce signals that are related to what's happening in the image there. And I just, I think that's such a, such a brilliant, interesting, clever idea. And, you know, completely analog, completely kind of chaotic and unpredictable. And it's, the, it's exactly the sort of thing that you can you can imagine people coming up with loads of different things that you can do with that that are different from what he's you know he's got the idea of you put a, a phone on it. There will be lots of other things you can do with it. There'll be ways you can feed it back into itself. There'll be ways you can do all sorts of things you can do with it. Um, and I think the thing that's that's nice about Eurorack is just because the barriers to entry are low because the ecosystem is so simple you know you just have to make a panel and that's it you don't have to make a power supply you don't even have to make the other the other five sides of the box does the box have six sides or eight sides anyway <laughs> um, six sides um you don't you, you know you 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 can try things very cheaply and you can put them out into the world and you can see how people react to them mm. so i think that you know that that hasn't changed um and I think people are still, you know, the more people who have it, uh, the more people will be able to experiment with it in that kind of way. Mm. But what do you think I, to that question? Well, I get the question. I think the question comes from the fact that Eurorack is becoming more ubiquitous. And there are people who've, at this point, gone through a, of owning it or being interested in it for many years. And... The start, you know, I don't think it's, there was. I saw a thread about it. Someone was kind of like, "I'm, I'm getting disillusioned with Eurorack. Just all this stuff and so many things that come out. I'm just like, but you know, I'm just kind of, I've had it. You know, I yeah. just want to go back to sort of a simpler time. And I, I recognise that there is an information overload with Eurorack because there are things coming out all the time. Um, yeah. And my solution is don't look at any of it. And don't go yeah. on forums. And don't. Yeah, I don't um, think I've seen most of what's come out the last over the last year. Nor have I. Uh, things come across my radar when I they sort of percolate. You know, it's almost like I'm actively trying to ignore it, and it just like it sort of needled me for too much, like a name of a celebrity or a song or something that I just yeah. don't 
that I've not, I've just not interested in. And it, but it just comes up enough. But I think in answer to it, is it interesting? It comes from a frustration of, of being burned out. And I think what I would say to that is, yes, it is still interesting. <laughs> and it's just a medium. It's like saying, you know, it's like people who say they don't like ice cream. I'm like, that's just, or music. That's, or music, yeah. It's just like, come on. Like, it you just is... what you mean by that is I've not found a type of music. I mean, it could also be that you have some sort of particular, um, you know, brain structure that means that it, music is annoying to you. But the point of what I would say is, and I think what I'm trying to do with videos that I'm making is I've been making a series of videos where it shows like a small system designed to make a particular result where it's yeah. like this system was designed for a result. And if you think about modular like that, then it should never be boring because there's thousands of modules to choose from and there's an infinite amount of results to achieve. And so yeah. Eurac should be seen as a the making of your perfect music machine. That is what it is at its purest point. And that, and yeah. it can work any way that you like, and you become the designer. And the point is, if you think it's boring, I don't think you're thinking like a designer. You're just like you're expecting it to be handed to you. Or, well, do you know what I mean? I, I think it's, or that you're just not interested in that process. Like I'm, I'm not up for designing something. I just want to buy something that someone else has used and focus more on making music, which is a very commendable goal if that's the case. And and as we always say in this, I think there is a big. You know what what people are doing with Eurorack and with really any hardware music stuff now is they are doing something that is willfully anachronistic and and something that is deliberately doing something to be more different and more interesting than the sort of straight path. You know, the straight path is you've got Ableton on your laptop and you can do anything with it. And if you want to write a song, you can produce a great. If you if you want to do anything with it, you can do it. Or if you if you're more experimental, you can do it on pure data rather than Ableton. Or you know whatever it is, um, that straight path is there. And anything involving any kind of hardware is deliberately deciding to diverge from that straight path. If you're finding that boring, then you shouldn't you shouldn't do that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like it's a and, and and I don't and I don't think um, I don't think that is probably what Dennis is is saying anyway. But I think if you've had it for a long time and you're bored of it, maybe you should do something else. You know, it's the we're back to James Murphy again. It's sell your sell your guitars and buy turntables. Buy, sell buy your turntables tables. and buy guitars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I would just argue that you can make a music machine that can allow you to be more fluid than Ableton Live. With enough modules, yes. you know, you, you really could. Um, yes. But, yeah, no, it's true. You could just sell it all. Get your little, like, slide credit card slider thing and just a pure yeah. data patch. You can get yeah. that. It's out, isn't it? The credit card slider thing. Yes, I think so. Yeah, the, the tape head one is definitely out. What about the, no, the little thing you showed me last year with your, like, eight sliders on it? Oh, that one is, I'm still programming it. I mean, literally. Have you released anything this year? That's not. Uh, I'm not accusing. This no, is no. I don't think question. so. Well, actually, so one question. of the other questions that has come up from a few yep. people has been, what about the big four uh, knobs? What about the big quad four knobs? knobs? The quad nobulator. 
which is it there. Is. Um, and that has not come out yet uh, because of, essentially because of COVID and um, China. So there's lots of kind of, I was talking to Steve a few, uh, about a month ago, uh, and there is there is weird stuff in the electronic supply chain at the moment. Um, so you, you see, mean? well, there are just things that are held up, things that are more difficult than you'd expect. Um, I've seen in other channel, you know, in other other channels, people are like, oh, we can't get certain microcontrollers. They're they're all sold out everywhere. Last year there was a whole thing on capacitors you couldn't buy, but then this year. We so the specific story with with that control module was we sent off to China to get the the circuit boards made, probably maybe four months ago or so, and they just kept delaying, not coming back. And there's nothing at all weird or complicated in that in that module. It's a very very straightforward thing, um, but it's it's whether they were working through backlogs from earlier in the year, whether there were delays in shipping, um, whatever it was. But apparently they are back now and big knobs will be available in February. I've certainly not been going to Steve and saying, oh, have you got this ready? Is this ready to go out yet? So the way it works is I literally kind of design things and then send them off and say, right, this is done now. You know, I've built my prototype. I've maybe got a prototype made in, you know, the, the circuit board might have been done by the company that we'd use to make the circuit board. Mm. Uh, and then it's over to him to do the difficult bit, you know, and do the kits and do the, you know, the supply chain and all, all of that side of it. I think the little uh, drive, the kind of mini move drive thing will come out as well, which is a, a just a really nice, simple, quick, it's good for, it would have been good for workshops. You know, it's a really nice, quick, easy thing to make. Um, I love that you put the light, the overload light in it as well. It's it's literally, I mean, literally the story for that, that module was I was looking at Instagram and there was a sound gas video. I think it was actually of their Spring Reverb, which has got a similar thing on it. And that kind of reminded me of that circuit in the, in the Mini Moog. And I started playing with it on the, um, the little phone app. Because I don't actually have a mini moot kind of knocking about the place. Well, have you um, got the Behringer one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, this is, you know, there's something really nice about this kind of overdrive and this kind of feedback loop and this this cool light on it. And then did the circuit very, very quickly. You know, the fiddly thing was obviously finding all the transistors that aren't the same as the ones they they used in 1970, whatever. And then when I got the prototypes back, it sounded really nice and seemed to to work well so that was another one this is very much kind of i've made this thing i don't know if anyone's going to want it um and it it also is to do with that one's to do i mean i've always been interested in kind of feedback loops and feedback and there's there's stuff in that as well about putting that into a feedback loop and it's got kind of two ins and two outs at the bottom so it's there's something about it there that makes it kind of interesting i think but distortions i think are very analog and that's to me coming back to mr Nonlinear, is i was thinking about our takeaways from 2020 <laughs> there are many but <laughs> i was playing with um i have a juno 60 and yeah. i was playing with the arturia ju6 i think it is the their juno 
I was playing with that software and I've not had the experience with the whole V collection thing where I've actually really known the instrument that was in it. Um, Yeah. But I really know what that sounds like. And so playing with the software, I was like, oh my goodness. Like I hear how similar it sounds. And then you can say, oh, no, you don't do the same. And I'm like, well, then I had to go to the actual Juno to remind myself because it was so easy for me to think, oh, that's not exactly like the Juno. But yet when I took the time to get it right and to compare, because, yeah. yeah, you do need different settings and it is also different setting, you know, dragging a mouse. By the way, you can hold, or you can right-click with the mouse and you get a very fine control, which oh, is okay. good. So yeah. You, yeah. Because on the sliders of the Juno, it really do, almost comes down to like almost rolling your finger to get... Uh, yeah a fader in exactly the right spot i was kind of laughing at one point because i was like this is just just silly and you think i i came to the conclusion i was like both playing with that and i also uh you he as heckman sent me diva and I, right. I had a real proper rinse of diva and just finally come to the conclusion now in 2020 that analog doesn't matter that no. it it I mean, I'm a little late to the party and I still like these objects, but what matters is interaction, is the way that you interact with something. Hence, you know, Nicholas's Jupiter 8 controller, I think is very valuable. But if you are purely talking about sound, I think we're there. I just think, I just think it's, non, it's a non-argument at this point. With that said, though, there are there are still certain things and there are still... In the world of distortion and feedback, and I don't have a tremendous understanding of DSP, it feels like distortions are where you'll find what analog is still best at. I remember when I was um, playing with writing firmware for clouds, you know, which I didn't do in any level of detail and don't, and don't have any understanding of, of kind of proper DSP programming at all. But I remember it was really interesting doing that and occasionally you would get something wrong and it would start doing really, really interesting, really, really odd things. You know, so so in terms of feedback, in terms of... It was definitely able to start producing things that were very, very... I don't know, felt very kind of non-linear and very kind of unexpected. Mm. You know, were as warm or whatever, any of those kind of words as, as anything. Um I couldn't really kind of recreate them or make them terribly useful, but it was it was definitely something where I was kind of shocked by how much how how quickly it became something that was indistinguishable from something that was all the sort of cliches about something analog, about it being analog and being mm. being being nonlinear and, and chaotic and all of those kind of things. Um, you know, so I, I I don't think there's any real you know magic to it I, th- I think there's there's stuff there's stuff in you know that the, we're very familiar with in in modular about being able to just you know plug things into things where they're not supposed to be plugged into you know i i am surprised when you look at software since why can't you just you know to, you know why can't you connect everything to everything else um and that that sort of weirdness i think and that, that sort of feedback loop is much is physically much easier to do in in a modular system or in a hardware system when you've got like a few guitar pedals plugged together or something um than it might be to do in in lots of software or lots of 
you know, there, there'll probably be plenty of other things where you can't, you know, you probably can't plug things into random places in a Juno 60 because those sort of patch points don't exist. It's not something you do, yeah. But you can also push a Juno 60 to extremes and sort of have it, it howls and does, especially the filter. One of the things yeah. that, one of the differences was that I discover how much, how unstable the filter on my Juno 60 is. And I sent recordings to the, to the people developing it and they were like, because I was like, oh, yours doesn't, yours isn't doing it right. And they're like, no, ours doesn't do what yours does. <laughs> Your <laughs> Juno 60 is weird. Like, it's not, and we've, you know, they have real, you know, they had a, they had a Juno 6, which is what they were basing it primarily on. Um, and I don't know if there are subtle differences between it being a 60 and therefore needing a layer of digital control, but, um, you know, the... <laughs> He's like, yours is weird. Yours is doing yeah. weird things. And it's, and it's, it's that classic thing. It, it is, they are all subtly different, which also speaks yeah. to the point that, like, it doesn't, you know, when people say it doesn't show like the real thing, it's like they really are all different and you are possibly splitting hairs. Every component will have a 10% variance and it will have done, that will have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. So they may well be significantly more than that now, mm. and, and but but then equally, you know, digitally you can obviously recreate that quite easily. So I think somebody was talking about doing digital devices where they're all actually different, you know. So you you could quite easily have a digital device that reads, um, you know, reads the serial number of the CPU and uses that to say, right, these are the, going to be the the allowances in this machine and this machine will sound different from your machine hmm. um, and that's that's a very simple you know mathematically that's a very simple thing to do um you know anything with a random number generator in it has to have a number to start that random number generator off or it have like it could be at different times of the day it could sound different as well whenever you do those whenever you do stuff with a random number generator it is interesting how so if you've got two devices that have normal kind of random number generators in them, if you can turn them on at exactly the right, the same moment, or actually often if you just turn them on, if it starts doing whatever it's doing immediately, it will be exactly the same, you know, because they both start at zero and the random number generator keeps ticking on. Often what you'll do is, is if you're doing it, you might have a seed for that. So you might, you might have a pin that doesn't, it isn't connected to anything. So it's got kind of white noise, you know, it's got noise in it. And you'll say, okay, read that pin. Okay, that pin is at number 4,027. Okay, start the random number generator at 4,027. So it will be different every time you start it up. But I th I, I'm always really intrigued by that because as well, that the other way of looking at that is to say, okay, rather than saying this is random, there I'm saying there are 150,000 different versions of this. And you can choose which one you want. And if you set it to the same number, it will produce the same thing. Mm. Uh, and it was interesting playing with that. I I got a um, the Fates, which is like the Norns, you know, this um, monomy thing. Mm. Uh, that's a lot of fun for that kind of thing. You know, you can you can create something in there where it will will create a sequence, and you say, right, that sequence has this seed, and every time you play it with that seed it will produce the same sequence but you can also choose another seed so it's that i you you very immediately get this sense that this box has got whatever it is three hundred thousand different sequences in it and you, they are all reproducible and they're all repeatable mm. there's no actual randomness in it but 
for you as a user, it can feel like it's producing something random. On the subject of repeatable randomness, uh, when is the Turing Machine 2 coming out, the DSP version? It's Well, it's definitely not something like this. This was something I was... We always get... Because the Turing Machine's the most sort of popular thing still um, that, that's, that I've made and that, that Thonk sell. Um, and it is quite a complicated circuit you know there's a reasonable amount to it so you get you do get customer you do get people having trouble with it you know people will make them and it won't work and the thing that's most sort of difficult in it is the noise generator so it has a noise generator in it and that's the thing that causes the randomness to be random and the noise generator is literally it has a transistor that is connected up wrong and because it's connected up wrong it produces noise and that's how noise generators are made. Uh, and But it does mean it's probably affected by temperature. It means it's affected by the specific transistor you happen to have. Uh, and that's why there's a little trimmer in it, and you set the trimmer to get the right level of randomness you want. But people, you know, some people have trouble with that. There's a trimmer what behind you... the behind the main pot. What do you mean? You mean behind well, on the, the... pot? On the behind the pot, there is a. I don't know if you, you might have to unscrew it. Behind the pot, there's a little window and there's a little trimmer in it. You Did you not build that? your own Turing machine? I have these things built for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually I haven't built this Turing machine, but I did build my other Turing machine, which is my sort of first one. I mean, I might have imagined it. <laughs> no, I see it. So there's a little trimmer there, and that just sets. That just sets the gain. Shit, indeed, the bed. Inside the right thing, that leads yeah. into a trimmer inside. That's yes, the oh, that's it, yeah. yeah. No, it's in the spring um, reverb. It's behind the, behind the pot. The, but, yeah, I built a really old one, which yes. did not. It was just that all Perspex. Yeah, that I think I had to get like a... To like buy the Perspex separately. It was before the good old days of thumb. Yes, yeah. That was definitely the... That, was, that would have been Mark One. But so I, I was thinking warm, about this... Warmer circuits. Uh, and I, um, I started, you know, I was, I was doing something with an Arduino and I was like, oh, what would it be like to make a digital version of this? Um, and I discovered that you could replace about 20 plus components in the Turing machine with one line of Arduino code, literally one line. <laughs> um, and then, but then you obviously start thinking, thinking this through and thinking, well, do I... Do I want to do that? Do I, you know, how many do you replace? Uh, and then obviously something it becomes something different, becomes something that's a computer. And I and I, you know, definitely would do that if I had an idea for something that it could do then that would be significantly different. Uh, and there are there are obvious things that a Turing can't do. So you can't do reset, you know, you can't store anything, you know, save any patches or anything like that. So you could conceivably do something like that. And obviously there are, you know, like the, the VCV rack Turing machine has reset in it. I remember talking to the people who, who coded it and I was like, yeah, of course, you know, that's a, if you're not actually doing it with logic chips, then that would be a, a reasonably sensible thing to have in there. Um, but I I don't think I'm going to spend much time. I can time think of lots of good things. It could have scale quantization. It could have multiple outputs. So it could have multiple clock inputs so you could you could have like three clock ins and three outs yeah. and you could clock it and it could be the same sequence being clocked a bit like that yeah. um bark 
thing, fugue machine. You yes. Know, it's like the same thing, yeah. different playheads. And... It could definitely be all those things. It could be a mar- it could be a different. It would. It could coexist. Yeah. It could be a different model. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely something. There's still lots of interesting things about sequencing. Um, it's just I. I so far haven't got to the point of having something that is that is what I want, and that the interface is is what I want. And it, it's mm. that thing of I, I think I do always want things to feel. <clears throat> to feel, um, I was going to say analog, but it's not feeling analog. It's feeling sort of tangible. I was talking to somebody the other day about um, radio music, and they they were interested in the idea of recreating things in Eurorack. So the idea of the idea of saying you're taking something and reproducing it in that Eurorack format. And so we were saying radio music is reproducing a radio in your rack format. But it does that in a very, very sort of partial way in that it's got that thing where if you have long files, they carry on playing in the background. But that's really the only sort of um, skeuomorphic thing about it. And you could obviously have a thing which then, as you switch between, between files, it makes a sort of squelchy radio noise. Or you could have a thing where you could literally be detuned, so it would be kind of between samples, you know, in a very kind of, you know, which would be a really interesting thing to do, but is quite a, it's something very different, you know, is that, is that, it's, it, is that it does then become skeuomorphic, and it sort of feels like it's giving, it's giving one answer rather than giving people the ability to find answers themselves, I think. Mm. But I don't know. I, I I feel very pretentious by my concern. You know, just just thinking about it, I was like, I am just being really pretentious about this. You know, maybe I just because I just couldn't be bothered to code some radio noise in between. In between, yeah, the but you, you would need to be excited about it to have the impetus yeah. to do it. There's no, you're not going to do something that you're like, well, it could, but. It just, you know, am I even into that as a notion? I get that you yeah. you have to be excited about something because it's clearly not a job. Do you know what I mean? It's not. This is not a job for you in the sense. Like it's not something that you do because um, it pays the bills. It's something that you do as a passion project that has a fringe yeah. benefit of you know helping to pay pay for things and just generally wash its face. So, yeah, well, but I think that's fair. I don't think you should, you have to do what you're interested in. It's just a shame that it's been very, <coughs> excuse me, difficult to do things this year. Um, yeah. Because. My, um, sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you because my desk has filled up. <laughs> okay. There we go. Well Give ourselves a round of applause. And we're back in the room. <laughs> Technology is amazing. I forgot what we were just talking about just then a second ago in a kind of digital amnesia because we had to stop for we 20 minutes. About, talking about, yes, I don't know what we were talking about just then. Oh, well, are you about to say what we were talking about? No, I, I was saying what we were talking about literally a second ago, which was um, work and being on Zoom all day long and you can't work in a, in a shared office. You can't concentrate. I feel that, yes, shared office working is not that effective depending on the type of work you do i think you need privacy to think about things and 
have a thought process, and it's very hard to do that when there are conversations like there. Happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say that, like, if COVID is good for at least just one thing, it's the fact that as a working world, we're embracing remote work, which is a way of saying we're embracing the fact that, you know, when people get promoted, that whole sort of madmen thing of, you know, when you do really well, you get your own private office. That's yeah. considered like a level up. Like, I wonder yeah. if there's a reason why it's considered a level up to have your own private office. There's certainly some types of work where it is nice to have everyone in one place, though. Certainly the kind of creative collaboration stuff is a lot more difficult. It's not entirely more difficult. It's certainly not impossible, but it's definitely more difficult to do it. Can't we just slack in this weird way? Flack and crack and just all of these like services, do they not replicate that? Well, I think it's more if you've... It would be nice to all go and have a workshop every, you know, a couple of times, you know, maybe once a week, but not to be... I think I think the thing that will really go is the idea of going and sitting in an office to look at a computer, which has been what people have been doing for for the last ten years, and is just is just madness. Mm. And when you go and you see, I'll go into these offices and you'll see, like in a bank or something, just rows and rows of people all looking at the internet. <laughs> They've all got sat on a train for an hour to go in and look at the internet there, and that that doesn't seem like a good use of anyone's time. It took doing it to prove to the people in charge that it wouldn't affect business horrifically that it wouldn't be like our business will just plummet off a cliff if you know everyone's just going to be sat in their underpants you know sleeping until midday and then logging on yeah. it's like well you have to i think the the good response to that is that if you're afraid of that then are you actually managing people effectively you know if you aren't aware of what people are doing or what is going on where projects are at then it is an indicator that you are not managing yeah yeah you've got a different set of problems so speaking of problems um i'm looking at uh, i've got the sort of questions from people we've started yeah. talking about some of these questions uh, i like um row minimal micro asks best dj set you've witnessed best live set you've witnessed wow that's uh, so i i obviously saw lots and lots of dj sets when i in my previous existence when i used to be the editor of mix mag uh, yes so we used to go to the the miami winter music conference every year so this was a kind of work trip where you go out to miami and there's all the all the djs all you know sitting around hotel swimming pools so i remember like danny tenaglia's parties at that were always amazing for that sort of talk me through a danny tenaglia party what was his would it would just down? be in some big op open air kind of party with you know just playing you know really cool music for about eight hours or something. <laughs> are you a dancer? Would you be like cutting a rug or are you? No, I'd be pottering about and talking to people at the bar. That's sort of you're thing. sort of more of it's a social event. Yeah, but yeah. what about you? What's your answer to that question? Uh, what best DJ set or yeah. what's a, my favourite Danny Tenaglia party? No, uh, what's I'm your what, what a good DJ set? I can no, I don't listen to that many. I really enjoy like when I'm like working, working day job working. I will put on like boiler rooms and and have sets yeah. on in the background and stuff. And there's obviously is an amazing. I mean, boiler room is just a very entertaining resource, but for a variety of reasons, mainly to watch <laughs> extremely mashed people um, be really annoying and cringy around DJs. Um, yeah. but there are some exceptional sets on there. Um, I'm trying to think what my sort of favourites, but I think particularly it's like 
in terms of good DJ sets, uh, there is the Deckmantle 100th anniversary podcast, which is Helena Half, Helena Half. Right. I realised it was Helena Half, and I've been saying I always thought it was Helena Half. So I'm sorry, <laughs> Helena. It's Helena Half, and it's like a, just an absolutely stormingly banging electro set that sort of yeah. just like it. It it's just one of those sets where like each one is like ooh. And it's like, oh, like, right, okay, like, this is even better. It's, it's like a masterclass in, like, tough electro and, like, modern and old. And it's really yeah. good. Uh, so yeah. I would thoroughly recommend that. And that's quite old, I think. And I particularly enjoyed, there's um, Paul Barker of uh, Din Sync fame has done a oh, few, yeah. like, Facebook streams and there's um, Facebook DJ sets. We just, Paul, just putting on some records. And there have been yeah. some discoveries from listening to Paul's sets that really because that for me is like it almost replaces radio like it is, we have six music in the uk and that is a good radio station it i would say it is the only like on national dab it's the only good radio station or of course yeah. very good internet radio stations like you know nts and and so forth but um also uh another brilliant one i was listening to Finley shakespeare uh finley shakespeare i need to listen to that a, one yeah it's brilliant on uh, and it was on Balami, Balami, which yeah. I've never heard of. Balami is a, a an internet radio station, one of the great ones, I'm sure. In Peckham, and he, yeah, he did a two hour um, set, and it is just brilliant. Just, I, yeah. I mean, I really like Finley's taste because Finley's very into electro, but he's also into sort of you know new romantic kind of. There's like well, not new romantic, but like he likes kind of synth, you know, eighty synth pop with the vocals, the words. Um, as much as electro and other things, and there's there's a bit where he was doing, he was playing like a Doppler effect, doing like an amazing Doppler effect tune that I haven't heard over um, Prince Charles and Lady Diana's uh, marriage ceremony, which he missed. I thought it was amazing. I was like, this is incredible. What is this? I was texting him. I was like, what is this? And it's just for a way of discovering new music. Like it reminded me to by the human league's dare album um yeah and the the one the there was one that finley was like ah, you got the wrong one you, you need to buy love and dancing which is martin rushant doing a kind of like dance remix from the stems of the human league's dare album which is really oh, okay. interesting so I've, yeah. I've bought that i bought cds because i gave up spotify in 2020 that is something i did um, mainly, I mean, partly from talking to you, where you're, you know, you're pointing out the fact that there is this sort of music on Spotify that are in mega playlists that get, you know, these sort of random generative piano pieces that have got millions of hits <laughs> and are attributable to absolutely nobody, and yet they somehow find their way into, um, you know, Spotify's biggest rotation playlist, combined with just like the whole, just all the shite that Daniel Ek has said, and it's just this sense that the it just is not working. If if you're a massive musician and you get millions of plays, it definitely pays you some money and it will be a strong contributing factor to your wealth and it keeping you afloat. But if you're anything but, it's a hindrance at this point. Yeah. And is it, Have you, is it go on. because the record labels are taking that money? Because that's what I've never quite understood because the 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 there does seem to be money being generated... It's not like actually Spotify is generating vast, vast profits. There's, There's a lot of revenue, 
but it's it's the the record labels all have enormous shares in Spotify. From what I understand, and I'm not that well versed in it, but the, obviously record labels take a you know reasonably meaty percentage of any income that you make. You know, you as the artist do not get 100 percent of your listening, you know, revenue, um, and so the label takes their cut. But I think the other things it comes down to are the fact that it's the model by which Spotify operates is that it does not distribute the money based on the, the listening that you, Tom Whitwell, do on Spotify. So if you do nothing but listen to extremely strange music, concrete music from you know one Polish composer for the whole year, if you only listen to that composer's music, that composer does not get your 9.99 a month they get what happens is your 9.99 gets divided across all of the music that is listened to on spotify and that does not include your habits it's just everyone's listening and so yeah. you know all of the mega pop artists ed sheeran and so on who have who who make up a huge amount of the listenership will get the lion's share of your 9.99 because that's how it works and that tiny, tiny fraction of people who listen to this Polish composer, then that composer gets whatever that fraction is from everyone's nine ninety nine. And so it's yeah, it, it doesn't distribute the money based on um, what you actually listen to. Well, it does. It just spreads everything across it. If that makes sense. Um, and I mean, it feels a bit like it's replaced radio. But the sort of the revenue from radio was always relatively marginal, and nothing's replaced the record sales. And exactly. obviously, this year, this year, nothing's replaced live music. So it's been. But the point is, they would say it's semi-comparable to radio in terms of the amount of people that hear you versus what you get. But of course, as you've just said, is the key difference is that Spotify is robbing you a sale of an album potentially which makes you a vastly larger amount of money if someone actually buys your cd or your mp3 far more money comes into your pocket than yeah would with a spotify yeah. player it takes one bank camp sale to generate what would be you know many thousands of plays and so yeah this is why yeah, if you're absolutely. a smaller artist and you just don't have that big an audience then it doesn't make sense and i think to make a parallel i can say for myself you know making youtube videos I, I have ads on my videos and I get a certain amount of money based on the ads. But I also have a Patreon and wonderful, amazing people contribute to my Patreon to say as a tip jar, you know, I like what you do. Thank you for making things. Here's, uh, you know, four pounds a month. And that Patreon money is significantly higher than the income that I would get from from ad revenue because I make relatively niche videos and get relatively few views. Yeah. And yet I can, I can almost make a, I can make a disproportionate amount of money when we're talking about ad revenue so that it's, it makes sense for me to continue making videos because it's not really enough to live on the amount that I'm, you know, and support a family, but it is enough, yeah. a bit like music thing. It's enough for me to say yeah. I should keep doing this and I, I want to keep this going and, and try and grow it. But it, if I didn't have Patreon and I was just relying on ad revenue, then it wouldn't make, I just wouldn't be making enough money. And I'd have to start making videos that have featured cats and, you know, and yeah. controversial things in order to get, you know, viewers at all costs. You could always be sponsored by, a, by, by some kind of successful German synthesizer company, maybe. Well, yeah, exactly. They, they could uh, sponsor you completely, so you only reviewed their material. Well, uh, but they don't like uh, 
you know, advertising in any way or sponsorship of any form. Uh, hence no, asking true. on Facebook, you know, uh, which, which sort of news outlets do you trust? Which do you not trust? No, we don't talk about them. <laughs> uh, so, DJ sets, what about music? Live music. Well, yeah, live set. What's your f- sort of favourite live set that you may have seen? So, I was, I mean, in terms of real live sets, um, you know, I mean, there are lots. I think I talked about in the past going to see Prince just before he died, and that was a, a really oh amazing God. thing to see when he was on his kind of last tour um, playing at the Roundhouse, and that was, that was incredible. Um, I was actually, I was watching, you know, because I very much missed, you know, being able to go to concerts. And it's one of, you know, it's one of the things that I think really, really, you know, have missed out on this year. Um, and whether, you know, whether it's even just, you know, going to Cafe Otto and seeing somebody playing teacups or something, you know, which is always a fun thing to do. Um, but I, I was saying that I've started, I was watching on YouTube, um, because one of the one of the one of my favourite things ever on YouTube is that there's a Talking Heads concert from 1980 in Rome that is just this incredible concert with this incredible lineup. That's sort of a few years before they did um, Stop Making Sense, which is much more of a kind of shiny, polished concert film. And then this year, David Byrne did this incredibly shiny, um, basically a Broadway show. Where he he plays old Talking Heads songs in a kind of Broadway musical kind of way, uh, which was quite I wasn't wasn't entirely convinced by, but that did sort of send me back to to YouTube to start looking at kind of old concerts and stuff. And the the two things that sort of came up when I was looking at that one was there is an amazing New Year's Eve concert by um, Ian Jury. Ian Jury and the Blockheads playing in, I think it is 1980 again. And just this absolute, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the, there's an incredibly Ian Jury film, like a feature film with Andy Serkis. Mm, I saw his it, life. Yeah. Um, and, and this concert is just extraordinary because, you know, apart from anything else, he's got a trumpet player who is Don Cherry, who is Nana Cherry's dad and this incredible experimental jazz trumpet player. Uh, he's got um, Wilco Johnson playing guitar there, and it's just this this kind of crazy, incredibly kind of English, incredibly London, incredibly kind of weird, eccentric thing. This kind of concert that was broadcast on on like BBC Two in nineteen eighty or something, so it has the whole the whole show. And then once you watch that, then YouTube recommends the Kate Bush in nineteen seventy nine when she did you know a tour. You know, the, the, she did two tours in her career. One was the 1979, and the other one was um, whenever it was a few years later, a few years ago. And that's just an incredibly odd, you know, really, really extraordinary thing uh, to see. It's got it's the first time that anyone had ever performed with like a head-mounted radio mic. So her sound engineer made this thing from a coat hanger. You know, it's literally, literally our main thing. And, and it's this just really, really kind of extraordinary, um, you know, very kind of theatrical, very, very weird uh, show that she did at wherever it was, Hammersmith Odeon or somewhere. 
exactly um, she wants to like move and express yeah, herself. Yeah, she's completely dancing all the way through in, you know, wearing a variety of kind of leotards. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's just a really extraordinary a good, thing, the whole, time. The whole thing. Um, so yeah, those were two kind of concerts that I watched recently because I haven't been allowed out to see any Because you were concerts. able to go into a time machine. Exactly. Actually, what about that you? reminds me. Well, uh, in a similar vein, that has just reminded me that I did when um, Florian Schneider passed away. Yeah. Um, I started digging back into Kraftwerk gigs. Oh, wow. There's, a, there's some really good, there's loads of recordings of Kraftwerk gigs from various years. And, but what, the ones that I'm particularly interested in are the computer world computer world tour which i assume would be like 81 i can't remember the exact year but they came to the uk um and um they it's like yeah there's lots to it i mean if you look online you can find um there's a scan from like keep i can't remember the name of the magazine but basically a 70s like electronic music and sort of diy magazine from the uk I think, which has yeah. a craft work. It has a whole like double page spread with a picture of their stage setup with like arrows pointing to what everything is and yeah. big interview with them explaining how they, it works. Um, but there are, you know, you can, you can hear the whole concerts and it is just, a, I mean, computer world is for me is like the album for them. And they just yeah. play computer. I think they just play computer world the whole way through with some variants um it is just an extraordinary spectacle and like the stage setup i think is like one of the best expressions of like electronic music on stage because they had this they had the clink clang studio which is you know they had everything fitted into these racks and there's very few pictures of clink clang but you can find there is a picture where you can see these custom speakers or speakers hanging on like trestles and then the tubes and then you can see everything in the angled racks. And it was because that, I understand, is they did have, like, they had everything fitted in Kling Clang. And the whole idea was that Kling Clang could be put onto touring buses and could be wow. taken and wheeled out to, you know, you know, Huddersfield, Town Hall, or wherever, you know, whilst they were playing. They didn't play in Huddersfield, but there was some amazing electronic music played in Huddersfield. Yeah. Um, but the, um, you know, wherever it was. And, and they've got, like, neon tubes and they had... I don't think they had projections at the might have had projections at that time. But of course they were doing, you know, all of their keyboards were in little like cases, so you couldn't really see what they were. But then yeah. there's video where you can see it from the other side and you can see that he's got like a polymog and it's a Prophet Five and it's the Mini Moog. Um and lots there's lots to it. I was deconstructing like the Eventide they were using, which was the one seven four five M. And but particularly because when it opens, it's like a there's like a drum beat and there's like a it's like a runaway even tied pitch shifting yeah. sound where it's like boing it goes up yeah. because it's pitch shifting up and up and up and just i like i got teary thinking about how mind-blowing it would be to be you know impressionable in 1981 and then you know you're in this thing and there's all this mystical equipment and these and this just sound like and it just opens with like pure electro kick it's like the birth of electro music basically you yeah know, or a form of it um and then you know you've got the runaway sound so it's like a strange alien thing and it comes out it's just like uh it, so it's 
it's musically fantastic and it's but it's also just that sort of sense of being there to witness something being born and there is a really good if you um watch the jeremy della documentary um yeah. that everything in its right place he talks about a picture of um uh ralph hutter like leaning out the pocket calculator in new york um and there's like a you know african-american person leaning out to play the pocket calculator yeah and there's you know and it's mick you know it's black people and white people in the audience everyone's smiling and everyone's like ah like he's you know and it's he says that whenever i feel depressed i look at that picture and i think about how you've got this amazing cultural sort of crash where you know these white guys do something but then black people take it and turn it into electro then you actually get yeah. electro what we um and then house and techno and so and that is a very important point, you know, obviously with Black Lives Matter move, but it's um, reminding people that, you know, these music styles, which have become very whitewashed, um, and there's, you know, that whole DJ Mag, top 100 DJs, you know, yeah. that whole thing. I mean, I don't know if Mix Mag had DJ, you know, polls and stuff, but it's, um, you know, all these pioneers, yes, it starts with Kraftwerk, but really the people who that was just a germ and it was it yeah. took black musicians to turn it into the styles that we love and that's and you know and all of this equipment you know that is all these industries that are feeding off dance music oh it you know oh yeah. that was the history of it um, yeah yeah agreed i don't have anything to add to that i agree <laughs> <laughs> okay good <laughs> um you said you bought a soma ether Oh yes, quite. Yeah, it I was, really um, want one of those. So it's it's like a little thing. It's like smaller than your phone, and it looks and feels just like a radio. And it is a radio. You put a couple of AAA batteries in it, and, and in the description it says, "We don't know how long the batteries last. We've got the same set in our prototype from six years ago, and they haven't gone flat yet. So we assume it will last quite a while." Um, and it, yeah, it's got two controls. One's just a volume, one on/off switch, and then it's got this sort of tuning control that I don't know exactly what it's doing. Um, and then it's got two little metal knobs that come at the top, like little antennas. It's quite like a detuned radio. But I, I I got it like a week or two ago, and you feel very, very, very pretentious doing this. But I was just put some little earbuds, had it in my pocket. And just go out and walk to the shops or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing when you're allowed out in lockdown. And you just get these kind of waves of weird, you know, of noise, of different types of noise. So I was, I was, I was listening, doing it in the evening. You know, you can just about, you hear cars go past, you get a little kind of buzz when cars go past. I discovered some parked cars produced a slow rhythmic kind of clicking so you walk walk up to it and it starts going like like a clock ticking or something when some types of bus go past you get this massive noise kind of coming out of fellow and you can't it's not completely clear how directional it is it's not like you point it and it picks up different things you you will suddenly hear there's like a really really loud kind of buzzing noise or something 
and you try and work out where it's coming from, where it is. And, and I think like walking past those, you get those sort of phone boxes at the end of the road. You know, they seem to produce kind of weird noise. You then feel extremely peculiar because you start standing there and if you just turn around sound changes so you you felt like a complete freak walking around the i just had it like in my jacket i wasn't i was too self-conscious literally walk around waving it there's a great video of um Heinbach demonstrates it and i think in that video a um a blimp like a, a an airship goes past exactly. and i think he can kind of pick up something coming from that um but it is you you really do just feel like there is this completely different you know it's like a different sense um, but it's it's very hard to kind of make sense of what what is actually doing. You also get actual radio coming into it. So I mine kept picking up Radio Four. You know, and sometimes very clearly, and you know, very you know, it was like listening to the radio. Um, other times it kind of washes in and washes out. So I've only heard it doing Radio Four. You can then obviously, if you touch the metal sort of prongs that come out, you then become part of the circuit or you can touch them to other things. So you touch to like a, a railing and the whole railing is is kind of your antenna. Oh, my God. It says they, they spent a long time kind of tweaking it uh, and it's quite different from the most straightforward kind of circuit. Because when I, I did a module that had a guitar pickup in it and that does the same sort of thing, but in the crudest way, that's just literally amplifying that circuit. And I think the kind of... The Electra Slush, which is the other other one you can get, which is similar to that. It's basically amplifying a coil. I get the feeling this is this is more is, is doing something slightly different because it's definitely got some element of of tuning in it. I think, but yeah, I would definitely it's recommend. When you it. like open it up and ins- inside, you see like the wires go into a piece of bone or something awful. Like <laughs> some kind of, it's some cursed device that uses wicked magic in order to. I do love the idea that there's just a hidden sound like the um, there's that or similar like there's that app RJDJ, which yeah. was in the early days of the iPhone and I hope still exists in some form. That was an app that you would walk around and you would use your iPhone headphones and it would use the mic and it would like remix the sound around yeah. you. So you know, it would add yeah. delay and reverb and echo and like pitch shift it. And I, I absolutely love that because you'd walk past something and you'd hear a version of it kind of remixed and reinterpreted. But I, yeah, the idea that there's hidden sounds in things is just wonderful. It was absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely that. And, and you like, yeah, I remember yesterday I was doing it and walked past the local train station and suddenly this like incredibly loud kind of buzzing kind of fades in. And, you know, just really, really, like, you know, you had to, you know, turn the whole thing down. I don't know if it's coming from the tracks, it's coming from a device, it's coming from the track, because yeah, you really can't, you can't quite tell where things are coming from. Mm. Is there music in things? Does yes. something have a musical tone to them? Do you know what I mean? Like, are they pitched? And- you, they're definitely pitched, and there are definitely some things that have, you know, kind of interesting sort of, shattering kind of you know those sort of data sounds almost mm. there's a lot of buzzes um but the the other thing is as you the, the the kind of tuning control does make an enormous difference so like if you have it in one position as you're walking around you hear you know small kind of white noisy noises everywhere you have it in another position you might get like big 
sort of much bassier noises. You know, it's it's, it's a. I, I'm still feeling slightly self conscious wandering around. You do find yourself sort of slightly rubbing yourself on lampposts. See what it's like. <laughs> I mean, whatever you do when you go outside, I guess you've got to take what you can get. It's good that you were going outside at all. I think Tom. It will be very interesting to see what how different it is if you're somewhere very remote. The other thing I found is you turn your turn your phone off because your phone obviously interferes with it. I did hear. Is this true that you, if you put it up to a tree, you can hear the radio, like radio? I like, could well imagine that because it's it becomes an antenna, yeah. And it's sort of the odd principles by which it works. Like the, uh, I, I I might have to just get one because it just seems so fascinating that idea of the hidden sounds in things. Yeah, I, I suppose what it reminds me as well is beyond RG DJ properly is detuned shortwave radios and exploring yeah. the sort of yeah. the sonic fire and brimstone which is the only way i can describe it where it's like if you listen to there's a sense of staring into the abyss when you listen to shortwave radios because they can make sort of very hellscape like tones where you get or you get you know actual number stations and things that yeah. are tinged with sinister you know, spy overtones and, and sort of clandestine communications and then things that sound like almost Morse code. Uh, and yeah. you're just like, is it Morse code? It could be. Um, I've heard all manner of things, including I've also, through shortwave, I've heard the International Space Station. Um, oh, wow. You yeah. know, which was like, and I don't have to talk about this, but like the International Space Station was set up with a shortwave like station on it and it was rebroadcasting what it received at certain frequency at a certain frequency while it passed right. over and i realized that the international space station would be coming over to the house here in the middle of yorkshire at like six thirty-two in the morning and so at six thirty-two in the morning i got up early i went outside i had everything set up i had a mini disc recorder and i had my shortwave radio and i literally went and stood in the the middle of the um lawn with my headphones on and sure enough at 6.32 it started to fade into my headphones and I was hearing oh, wow. all of these broadcasts which were all like you know Spanish and like different language multiple language broadcasts like a sort of polyglot of sound um, and it was what I was hearing was from the International Space Station above me but it was everything coming up and being rebroadcast back down by it. So I have a recording of that still somewhere. And it's, That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's just like those kinds of, that sense of, I don't know, communing across the ether is very interesting. It's just sort of, it tickles the same kind of bones in, as I do from like hearing ghost stories. Yeah. The great thing about this is the, is the, the movement as well. Like I remember, the other thing is you, go, you walk into like a supermarket and the whole thing just kind of lights up because there's so much electrics and lights and fridges and stuff. Um, so there's something about that movement. It, it is like a different way of understanding the city or hearing, mm. hearing the city. And is it affecting me? It's that whole 5G thing, you know. Is it, does it hurt my body? To, I mean, that's what I talked to a surgeon this year and I, I loved how he talked about it. He was like, he was like, I was thinking about the fact that not to do with like, audio damage but the sheer vibrations on my body that i experience from going to these like you know going to like dutch clubs where it's like arms warfare for sound systems and you know i love that i was like fair point you know vibrating your body is like an industrial it's like sounds like the kind of thing that you would yeah. get you'd sue a 
you know, uh, your employer <laughs> for because, but, and, you know, he can't sue his employer. He's self-employed. <laughs> so I think, I don't know if there's other questions. Have you learned any lessons? You got anything that you're sort of, you can take away from this year and bring into the next? I don't know. I suppose it's, it's the, um, there's something about that, that feeling of, um, you know, feeling like you're not delivering something. Which I, you know, I've certainly felt this year. I felt like, you know, I haven't finished things. I haven't got. Them. But then, the real point of this is, you know, you you do then focus on actually what's important. <laughs> you know, I'm healthy. I still have a job. I am fine. My family are all well. You know, it it, it is that just kind of absolutely reminding everyone of what's important. You know, and and I think you know, in in my both sides of my kind of work, in in sort of my day job. It's been very good to be working for a company that's good and looks after the people who work for it and is trustful, trustworthy. And then seeing how Thonk responded to it, you know, immediately completely restructuring the entire kind of operations of the company in order to make sure the people who work for it are safe and secure and well. That focus on what's actually important, um, I think, is probably the most positive thing to take away from what was otherwise quite a quite a problematic year i think what about you i agree with that certainly i hope it's letting people talk more about their mental health and it's there's certainly i see online there's a lot more people going you know it's okay to not feel pretty good about what's going on and don't feel that you're supposed to put on this like mega happy face if you're not feeling it which is an obvious thing to do but by very nature of the fact that everyone's experiencing something quite negative of being, you know, holed up and not able to see their friends and family and like, you know, not able to have a Christmas and things like that. It, it is it is reminding people that it is okay and that you should talk about those things um, if you can. Um, and absolutely, yeah, your family. You know, I had a kid in 2019 and I've watched him grow into a, like a little boy and he's now just in the last few days as of kind of 15th of January he's really starting to walk like he's he was toddling but now he's like this is almost my default mode now um, yeah and it's just like it does have an incredible way of focusing your mind uh, on what is important that is absolutely true it's that thing that people say oh, you know you can't be creative unless you're miserable I find the opposite is true. I think it's you can't be yeah. creative if all your other needs are met. Like, you know, well, how can I possibly have time to think about, you know, finishing an album if I'm struggling to eat, you know, and it's sort of, or I've got to work, you know, and I'm worried about the virus and I could be passing it on to the people I live with, and but I've got no choice because I've got to go to work. And it's, you can't, how can you be creative unless you're feeling comfortable? Uh, I think if you've achieved anything <laughs> just be proud um but just um i don't know it's like i talked to bt um on this podcast and he uh, he had some amazing things to say and i liked how he said that you know he's like if you don't feel creative like just tidy up like tidy up your studio organize your cables i just got a yeah. label maker at christmas can't i mean my my power bin i spent a day and I sorted out my power plug bin and I've labeled every power plug. And yeah. so, you know, it's even so I can see like, you know, minus 12 volt, uh, three amp center positive. And so 
the act of doing that is it's almost like paying forward something yeah. useful, something that will help you when you feel creative, um, which I thought was such an insightful thing to say. He also he embraces this thing of of having concentrated setups like his he doesn't not everything is patched into everything the modular is an ideas discovery playground and he has a dedicated computer for just capturing the audio that he works on that does nothing but just act as a tape machine so he can hit space bar and just have a little bit of a modular freak out and then just yeah. takes that to his other computer to edit and it's um you know the setting up of the modular area he has like all these clocks are like pre-wired, everything's ready, so he doesn't lose anything when he wants to go to it. Um, and so I suppose, it's, yeah, it's that. It's like thinking, if I don't feel like making something, or if I just kind of feel like, oh, fuck it all, I just can't be asked with this anymore, then do those housekeeping things. Because if you can make your studio usable and accessible, that will probably make you feel good that you've done it. And when you do feel creative, you can just go up to this stuff and use it. That's yeah. because if you're anything like me, it's like if it ain't plugged in, I'm probably not going to use it. I'm I'm a path of least resistance. So Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely feeling that kind of just being overwhelmed by loads of not quite done projects or not quite finished ideas. Like if you're looking at this, you can see there's – there's literally a pile of like takeaway boxes up there, each of which is a project. And inside it'll have like a circuit board and a few components and a few ideas. And I'm just thinking I need, I need a much better way of organizing and storing those projects so I can, so I can make sense of them. Cause it's literally a stack of empty takeaway boxes and like an ice cream box and stuff. And, and there's something about that being able to being able to then return to something so you can then find it and you can make sense of it. So you don't essentially have to reinvent the whole thing from scratch when you go back to it. So you can carry on working on, on a bunch of different things simultaneously. Because I, uh, you know, I absolutely will, will do that. Where you you have an idea, you get very excited about an idea for like a weekend, and then you might not think about it for six months. But then two years later, you might go back and finish it, and actually, that's when the thing is is done and it comes out. But I do, you sort of feel that risk of losing those projects or losing those ideas just, you know, physically because you, you, you kind of lose the bits or you lose how they worked or you lose the sense of what you were, what you're kind of trying to do with it. You need a sort some, of notebook or, you know, like a... You could use a notebook, yeah. <laughs> journal or something, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but maybe you do need a new system for working or you need some kind of like a whiteboard or something. There must be a solution. You're going to have to design it. Or don't we need, we need to get James Carruthers to come and like come to, yeah, Tom Whitwell Incorporated and do a study on what you're trying to do. There's that fantastic story about, um, uh, what's his name? Stanley Kubrick, who was obsessed by his boxes that he, he stored his oh, projects yes, in. Yes, yes. And he, he had these boxes made and designed to a perfect size to store, I guess, scripts and whatever material was, and just had his archive was just shelves and shelves and shelves of these perfectly matched boxes. So perhaps that's my, perhaps that's my project for 2021 is, is suitable boxes. And when we do this next year, it'll just be a perfect grid of um, boxes with neatly described projects on the sides. And that will be my, my effort for the year. <laughs> I'll have finished any music at all. <laughs> it's been brilliant watching um, Look Mum No Computer 
you know, his Patreon thing seems to just be amazing, how it's just driving him to do these kind of crazier and crazier projects. You know, every time I see it, you know, he's bought, like, he's bought a, he bought, like, an Edison um, cylinder record, you know, player. <laughs> it's just, I mean, that's an amazing like thing. Any, any crackpot thing can be indulged. It is brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's also the benefit of it being a full-time job, too, is, like, if it... It would be a very different thing, and I, and I don't know whether it would be... I'm not at all sure it would be better or more enjoyable for me. And I don't think I would necessarily have the sort of freedom to just be, I'm only going to do things that I, I find interesting. Although I must say, I'm still trying to write the firmware for that slider thing, that fader box, and it's just tedious now. I'm nearly there. <laughs> Are you still getting up at six o'clock in the morning? No, I've been, I've been, I did kind of a good year of that that was partly because my daughter was doing it as well. And then she's gone to a different school. She doesn't do that anymore. I haven't had, I haven't been as deliberate the last, certainly last year I wasn't nearly as good at doing that. And would like to get back to doing that, I think, but haven't quite got the focus yet. Mm. Have you been able to do that? I suppose your no. days will be weird because you've got a small child though. He's a little wee guy. Um, I'm really bad. I really am finding it hard to get up. And my, my wife is incredible. She's doing... She's much, much, much more responsible than I am and a much, arguably, in many respects, a better parent. Getting up at six o'clock in the morning is kind of the only viable way I can see in order to do additional creative projects whilst also having a full-time job. If you, if you try and do it in the evenings, as you said last year, you're like, it's very hard and doing it, you get your evenings back. To, to decompress and yeah. do something you want to do because the alternative is that if you don't get up at six you and you don't want to do some your creative project you just want to do something else it's, then you feel guilty and in a sense you never yeah. really enjoy any of your free time because it's always yeah. gnawing at you that you've got homework to do whereas if yeah. you start the day and you do get up and you do the work then you you begin the day with a sense of achievement and you, you feel yeah. like today I moved my project on a little bit and I feel yeah. good and you start the day running. It really is amazing, but it does require yeah. getting up. Um, I think I said last year that I, I've got this eye mask that has lights built in and an LED. Oh, yeah. You should definitely make a version of that because the programming on it is really whack. If you want a side-side, side-side project is doing new yeah, version no, I don't of those. Want that. And then not CV controlled version. So that... <laughs> <laughs> just remotely controlled so your Patreon supporters can wake you up when they can think it's appropriate for you to get up. <laughs> That's yeah. Some sort of Black Mirror episode. <laughs> if you're a pro subscriber, you can just wake you up and tell you to get You can get see me sleep. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks very much. I think that'll... That's, cool. We should stop talking. Let's stop talking. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much for your time. That was Tom Whitwell, ladies and gentlemen, for the fourth time. Um, 
always a lovely time talking to Tom. Always interesting things that come out, as I say. Um, Duns to unpack there. <laughs> and, uh, I think probably the sort of main thing that I left that conversation with Tom just like absolutely raring to get a Soma Ether. So guess what I've got in my hand? And guess where I got it from? Yes, friends, it's signalsounds.com. They supplied the Soma Ether in short shrift um, because they have them in stock. Uh, it's true what the guy in the ad says. It is quick and easy. Um, and here it is. Uh, I'm, I might actually play it. I've got it set up so we can actually have a little demo. Um, because, yeah, what Tom says is true. It's bonkers. It's If you um, put it near cars, like I uh, put it near the car, like we've got a car with remote central locking. If you put it near the door handles, the door handles themselves beep. There's like a little, when you get it right close to the handles, there's obviously some kind of like sensor there. And there's just sounds to be discovered in all manner of things. Um, one particular standout highlight was variable dimmer switches. Like the, if you actually put them right up to the dimmer switch of your, you know, dimmer for your big light and you change the dimmer, then it sounds like pulse width modulation. It literally sounds like a pulse width modulated square wave, uh, which probably electrically is what's actually happening in some form. Um, but yes, I don't understand electrics. Um, but yeah, I've got it here. It's like a black box. It's plastic. It's just a very light, thin little, like smaller than a cigarette packet um, with two little prongs on the end. And indeed, if you turn it up, you hear fire and brimstone. So what I'll do is fade it up. Can you hear that? Just sounds like a tone. Well, that is my monitor. If I turn my monitor off, it goes dead. You get this kind of crunch, but I'll turn the monitor back on. <laughs> turn the monitor off. And so, yeah, if you like, just put it near things in your studio. There are sounds. little pulsy things this is the i've got a little like uh, lcd screen that is a led light if i turn it on ooh. Ah, that is turning the light on and off So yeah, I mean, who needs all this bloody synthesizer crap when you've just got a little device that can hear the sounds in things? Um, and of course, it's quite noisy in here. It's an interesting, like, it's not a great environment for getting different sounds, but there are some fascinating sounds to be had in the world. And it's just that it's that sense of getting a, like a look at an invisible world. I think that's really interesting. Um, it, as I said in the thing, it makes me think about like ghosts, you know what I mean? Like it's that, that idea of, you know, the sort of hidden sort of spirits in things. It's very creepy. And there's a sort of uh, final thing to play you, because uh, obviously that wasn't very, it wasn't much of a thing. I mentioned during the podcast, this whole like recording of the International Space Station that I made, and I sort of described it to Tom. Um, well, I've actually 
got that recording. Uh, I found it and because it is still on my hard drive and that recording, interestingly, uh, it was from 2006. It was 5.39 in the morning on the 7th of February 2006, so 15 years ago that I went outside and stood with my mini disc recorder. I'm going to chop it up a little bit and shorten it just because it was quite, uh, you don't need to hear the whole thing. But I thought you might be interested to hear it. It's noisy and it makes me think of the Soma Ether. So thank you very much, Tom, for your time. I want to thank Signalsounds.com and of course Skillshare for sponsoring. Check out that link in the description if you're interested in learning stuff. It's a very good site. I do genuinely endorse it. So check it out. And thank you for listening. And to play us out, let's hear the lovely, warm, <laughs> screechy tones of the rebroadcast sounds of the International Space Station. Playing back sounds from all over Europe. That's it. I'll see you next time. Thank you.